Welcome everyone to week two of our seven-week series, When Trouble Comes. I invite you to look at page number three of the notebook that you can pull up by hitting the Class Notebook button beneath your media player at our website, cbctrenton.com. Those notes are adapted from the study guide for a book that's mentioned in the bibliography titled, What's Good About Feeling Bad? by John Thomas and Gary Habermas. Last week, we looked at six realities, six universal truths about suffering and about pain. If you missed that, it's recorded on our website, again, cbctrenton.com. And this week, we're going to look at some key beliefs and assumptions that we make that affect the way we process our suffering and pain. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. At the top of page three, you see the title of this lesson is The Bedrock of Suffering. And it's called that because what we're going to see today is foundational. The beliefs that you have regarding yourself, regarding God, regarding the world, these will all come to the fore when you're in the midst of, when you're in the cauldron of suffering. You may not know that you held these beliefs until you go through a particular kind of time of suffering. And then that exposes some underlying assumptions that you make about yourself, about God, about the world. And that's why it's called the bedrock of suffering, because it's foundational. It's underneath the surface. You don't necessarily know it's there until it's revealed and it's shaken. And it's sometimes shaken in the midst of suffering and pain. And so last week we saw, among other things, that suffering is universal in a falling world. And that means that, as I've said many times in the past, that for most of us, we are either in a trial now, we've emerged recently from a trial, or we're preparing to go into a trial. That's the universality of suffering and pain, that it's so ubiquitous. It is so pervasive that we're either in it, we're coming out of it, or we're going into it. And we saw from James chapter 1 and verse 2 in the Bible where Scripture says, My brothers, consider it pure joy whenever you fall into trials of various kinds. We saw last week that that small verse teaches us four things about the universality of these difficult situations that we call trials. They're unavoidable. They are unplanned. We saw that they are unwanted, and that they are unlimited in their variety. And again, if you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to listen to that lesson so that you can catch up at our website, cbctrenton.com. So suffering is universal, and it's so universal that I can say with confidence, you're either in a trial, recently emerged from a trial, or ready to go into a trial. God's Word says that it's not a matter of if you will go through suffering, but when. My brothers, consider it pure joy whenever you fall into trials of various kinds. So this is a reality that all of us have experienced, are experiencing, and we will experience in the future. But the same trial experienced by two people can have very different effects on them. You could have two people go through virtually the same thing and have dramatically different effects. Now why? What's the difference? 
The difference is not the particular situation they're in, because it's the same for both. And yet the results for these two people are radically different. What makes the difference are these bedrock foundational beliefs, the foundational assumptions that we bring to it. What makes the difference in how you process and experience your suffering and the results that are achieved out of it is your perspective on it, your attitude toward it, your beliefs in the midst of it. So let me give you an example of that from God's Word. We've seen that James chapter 1 and verse 2 says, My brothers and sisters, consider it pure joy whenever you fall into trials of various kinds. But then it tells us why we can have a completely opposite experience of our suffering than that of most people. Because the next verse says, James chapter 1 and verse 3, that you can have this joy because you know something. It says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And then the passage goes on to talk about perseverance developing character in us. So the reason that I can have a radically different perspective on suffering when, not if it comes, is because I know something to be true. I know that in and through and as a result of this thing, good things will ultimately occur. God's Word promises us that if you know and believe that truth from James chapter 1 and verse 3, then in the midst of the test, you'll not only survive, you'll thrive. You'll pass the test, as it were, because verse 3 calls it a test of your faith. That is, trials test what we believe. And that's what faith is. It's what we believe. So in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the test, the question is, do you really believe what you say you believe? Now, in that same passage, James chapter 1, it makes that statement that you can go through trials with a radically different approach than that of those who do not have this knowledge, that good will be achieved in and through it, and it will develop these good things. But then later in James chapter 1, here's what it says. James chapter 1 and verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. And then it goes on to talk about the process of temptation that leads to sin. Now, what do these two things have to do with each other? What do James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, have to do with James chapter 1 and verse 13? Remember the beginning of the chapter says, Consider it pure joy whenever you fall into trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. That's what the beginning of the chapter says. But then when you come down to verse 13, it says, When tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me. Now, why? Why does it say that? How are those two connected? Well, they are indeed profoundly connected, and here's how. You may recall that your New Testament was originally written in Greek. So what we have in our English Bibles is a translation from Greek. The word that's translated trials in James chapter 1 and verse 2 is the same word that's translated tempted in verse 13. Well, if it's the same Greek word, then why didn't the translators just use the English word, the same one, in both of those verses? Well, there's a good reason for that. It's because what James is trying to show is that the same circumstance that can be to one person a trial that leads to growth, that same circumstance can be to another person a temptation 
that leads to sin. These two different English words are used to make clear what James was saying, namely, that a difficult circumstance in our lives can either result in growth, perseverance, and character, or that same circumstance can result in a temptation that leads us to sin. And what's the difference between the two? It's your perspective. It's your attitude. It's what you believe. You may remember when you were a kid and the cereal boxes would sometimes come with a gift inside. One guy I read recounted how excited he'd get to discover the toy. And on one occasion, as he put his grimy, dirty hand in there to pull out the gift, on that occasion, the gift was a decoder ring. And on the back of the cereal box, there was a map that the ring helped you to decipher. Well, the same thing is true for the perspective the attitudes, the beliefs that we have in the circumstance that God allows into our lives. Those are, in effect, the decoder ring that interpret, that map our way through that trial. At the top of page 3 in your notes, after the list of key verses, and I encourage you to read those each week before we come together if you can. We have a list of those key verses at the beginning of each lesson, and after that list of key verses, we mention an illustration called The Layoff. It's a true story. Two guys, both aged 45. Both are married. Both have two children. Both of them have one of those children in college. Each of them had worked for the same company for about 20 years. Each of them had exemplary records as employees. They were well regarded by their associates. And yet the company announced that they were going to undergo some downsizing. And when they handed out the slips for those who were going to be let go, these two guys each received pink slips. They were quite surprised, as were their co-workers, given their background and their very good work that they had done for all of those years. But they were both let go. Now, what happened to those two guys? Well, they brought two very different perspectives to the same circumstance. One guy believed that God would take care of him and his family, but the other guy could not move beyond the shock of what had happened to him. That man spent much of his mental energy in the days that followed thinking about a list of people who should have been terminated before him. He railed against his boss. He expressed fear for the future of his family. He worried about telling his daughter that he would not be able to pay for her college, and his entire approach was dark and bleak and unproductive. The other guy went on with his life, and he ended up finding a job. Now, it meant that he had to relocate, but it was a job with similar income, similar benefits, and he moved on, and he expressed thanks to God for supplying his needs. But the other man refused to look for a job outside of the company for which he had worked. In fact, he put in applications only within other divisions of that same company because in his mind, they owed it to him. He wasn't able to find anything. He became depressed. His wife left him. And sadly, and as I say, this is a true story, he ended up taking his own life as well. Now, of course, most situations are not that dramatic. But it's an example of two people who were in the exact same circumstance. They were in the same demographic circumstance in life. 
They were married, two children. Each had one in college. Both had been with the company for roughly the same period of time. And yet they took very different perspectives into this trial, and it had two very different outcomes. So friends, what I want to to drive home to you today is that each of us has beliefs about ourselves, about God, about others, about the world. And these come to the fore when we experience suffering. Some of these beliefs are more firm and lasting than the more tentative beliefs that we have. Here's an example of a tentative, temporary belief and how it's different from the other category of firm and lasting beliefs. Suppose you believe you're a good tennis player. You believe for a bit that you're a good tennis player, but it turns out that when you go out on the court, you get smoked every time. You'll probably be able to change your opinion about that fleeting belief without changing everything that you believe about yourself. You can believe you're a good tennis player. You can be mistaken, but then you can discard that belief. But at the same time, you believe that you are, in general, a competent person. So when you come to realize, hey, I'm not a good tennis player, for most of us, it's not going to change our more firm convictions about ourselves. I'm a competent person overall. I can do things fairly well. Okay, I can't play tennis very well, but there are a lot of other things that I can do. And you're going to hang on to that belief, even in the face of evidence that you're not competent in every area, like in your tennis ability. And that's because you have other beliefs that form your perspective about your competence. And those are the beliefs that are foundational to you. They're the bedrock beliefs that you have about yourself. You have some beliefs that kind of come and go. I thought it was this, but I realize it's not. But you have other beliefs that are very deeply embedded. In fact, they're so deeply embedded that we seldom even consciously think about them. We seldom explicitly say what those things are. But when those beliefs are challenged, we are usually adamant in our resolve to maintain that particular belief even in the face of contrary evidence. Now, how do we develop these views of ourselves? I'm a good guy, or I'm a good gal. I'm competent. I can get it done. How do you develop these bedrock beliefs? Well, they come to us very early on as we observe how the world operates and how we draw conclusions about what we see. Those conclusions become the lens through which we perceive the world, and we make generalizations about it. So we live our lives as if those conclusions are absolutely true. They're well-founded, they're binding, and they're reinforced through experiences that we have. So for example, if you're someone who has some degree of intellectual competency, and then you have that reinforced in your experience by people telling you how smart you are, and you go to school, and if you happen to have the disadvantage of going to one of those schools that tells you that everybody is smart, then you'll never be prepared to face the reality that there are people actually smarter than you. Now think about that person going out into the real world, going into the college world, going into the workaday world, and they find out that they're not as smart as they thought they were. A lot of people have a very hard time accepting that because Unlike I'm a great tennis player, 
This is one of those core beliefs about myself that's now being challenged. The person's beliefs about what sort of world we live in, how we should be treated in that world, what it is we're to expect from life. These are what we carry with us, including into our suffering. And those core bedrock beliefs determine the way that we face everything, including adversity. And that's why we have on page three some key beliefs. These are beliefs that many people have about themselves, about the world, about others, about God. We take these into the situations that God allows into our lives. And if we have false beliefs, those are going to be exposed and they'll affect the way that we process, the way we navigate through that difficulty. We will be like the one guy who got laid off and he said, the company owes me. Or we can be like the other guy who trusted God in the situation. So take a look at some of these key beliefs. The first one is on page three, and it's this. I deserve ease and comfort in life. At the very beginning of human history, the very first temptation given to humanity involved the false belief that God does not have our best interest at heart that God is withholding something from us. The serpent, Satan, said to Eve, in effect, the reason God does not want you to eat of this one tree in the midst of the garden is because God knows that when you do, you will be like God. So God is withholding something good. I should have it. And therefore, I'm going to do what's necessary in order for me to get what's mine. That's the first sin in the early part of your Bible in Genesis chapter 3. Sigmund Freud spoke of what he called the pleasure principle. And he said, the desire for pleasure is our primary motivation. To maximize pleasure and avoid pain are what motivate most people. Consider the fact that people, people like that who grow up in America are people who have been told since we were able to read, all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable, inalienable rights. Among these, life, liberty, and what else? The pursuit of happiness. you got to love America because we get to pursue the thing that our ancestors wanted to do in the garden, namely have total autonomy, and we get to pursue it our own way. So we have this inbred sense, going back to Adam and Eve, that we should be able to pursue our happiness and that our happiness is the highest good, and then you add to that, when we live in America, we have it explicitly stated in our founding documents that we're endowed with the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And so on page three it says, we've created a world in which we savor our comfort and immediate gratification, replete with drive-up windows and ATMs, things that give us gratification quickly, now, these things are not wrong in and of themselves. The problem is usually not the source of the comfort, but our passionate pursuit of it. Our earnest demands for comfort usually compel us to find ways to elude the undesirable consequences of our actions. And so things like lying, or abortion, or divorce, these are ways that we escape pain and suffering that result from poor choices that we have made. 
And as we live, we attempt to make life as comfortable and convenient as possible. It's the self-consuming nature that makes understanding God's purposes in suffering unreasonable to us. How can this be that this is happening to me when in fact I'm entitled to pursue happiness? Not just pursue it, but to actually have it. And when someone who has that underlying embedded belief confronts difficulty, they typically assume God is not good. Now, how are you going to know if you have a bedrock belief like that? A bedrock belief like God is not good in your belief system, that I deserve ease and comfort in life. How are you going to know if you have that? <clears throat> well, here's how. You'll know by your reaction when it's taken from you. What comes to the fore with regard to your beliefs about God and about yourself and about other people in a situation like that. Many of you know the name C.S. Lewis. Lewis was a brilliant man. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and many subjects related to Christian theology and practice. He has some very, very keen insights. I'm told he said some things that we might find questionable with regard to his Christian faith, but he nevertheless said some extremely helpful things. One subject he knew about personally and about which he wrote extensively was pain and suffering. He describes the typical view of the nature of God that many of us have when we undergo suffering when he says, if God were good, we think he would wish to make us creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he'd be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, what do we conclude about God? He says God lacks either goodness or power or both. He's saying that's what many of us believe falsely about our circumstances. Do you see, friends, that in our adverse circumstances, when we react to those with questions about the goodness of God, it's because we had already made some assumptions to begin with. And those assumptions included, I deserve ease and comfort in life. So we've got to compare that assumption to the truth of God's Word. Does God's Word teach I deserve ease and comfort in life? Les Olala, the past president of Northland International University, who spoke at our church a few years ago, had a number of memorable sayings. And one of those was, quote, Every day that you don't wake up in hell is a gift from God. Now that's a biblical perspective on what we deserve, is it not? I mean, consider the cross. Why was the cross of Christ necessary? Why was the violent death of Jesus required? It's because we have committed, each one of us has committed capital offense against God. And therefore, there must be capital punishment for that offense. Either we will suffer that punishment ourselves, or we will receive the gift of God, the punishment of Christ on the cross as our substitute. But we cannot, dear friends, we cannot look at the cross and claim to be Christians and then at the same time say, I deserve peace and comfort. The cross belies that very thing. What made the cross necessary was that we were liable to death and punishment. And Jesus has taken that punishment upon himself. We still live in a fallen world. And because we still live in this fallen world, the effects of that fall are all around us and we will be affected by it. So there's the belief that says, 
I deserve better. And when it doesn't happen, it affects those who believe it profoundly. It exposes my beliefs about God, myself, and about the world. You've got plenty of Christian books and videos and media to reinforce this false idea for you. The idea that we are victims to be healed rather than being sinners to be saved. And what we really need, they say, are six or eight or ten keys to happiness. It's not what God's Word teaches about us or what God is doing in and through us. And contrast that kind of attitude to Corey Ten Boom. Many of you know that name as she survived the Holocaust. She was imprisoned at Ravensbrück concentration camp north of Berlin, and so she knew much about adversity. She suffered hunger, sleep deprivation, appalling living conditions, brutality, and the loss of personal possessions. She lived under the constant threat of extermination. But as she recounts in her book, The Hiding Place, Though she had moments of doubt, the circumstances actually fortified her belief, believe it or not, in the goodness of God. Years after her release, she wrote that Christians are wrong to say what she often hears, this or that should not have happened. She describes what happened to her sister, who she lost, and yet Corey Ten Boom gives testimony to the fact that God showed his goodness even in the midst of her time in a concentration camp and the loss of her own sister there. Now, how many Christian people would be able to have that kind of perspective on the character of God in the midst of difficulty? Our difficulty, our trials, our pain, our suffering, they all reveal what our real beliefs are about ourselves, about God, about the world. And one of those beliefs that comes to the fore is that I think, contrary to what the Bible teaches and contrary to what I may even profess, but in my heart of hearts, I believe I deserve ease and comfort in life. Now, here's a second key belief on page three. Middle of page three says, I deserve a predictable world. We say there, the belief that the world must be predictable is based on the assumption that misfortune is not arbitrary and that events are mostly positive in outcome. This attitude leads us to believe that if we train our children properly, then they'll not fall away from God. If we're good workers, we won't lose our jobs. If we take care of our health, we won't get sick. Now, certainly such behaviors may decrease the likelihood of negative outcomes, but they'll never reduce the probability to zero. It's our embellished belief in control that contributes to our blaming victims when we see them in their tribulations. Now, what's being said there is that many of us have embedded deep within this idea so that if I do it right, it comes out right. So when trouble comes, it flies in the face of that, and as a result, I'm unhappy. I'm depressed because I've not received what I deserve. What do I deserve? Well, I deserve, in this view, the commensurate outcome for what I've put into it. I raised my kids right. I worked hard. This should be the fruit of my labor, and when it doesn't happen, I'm not getting what I deserve. Oh, dear friends, be very, very, very careful about setting up a standard in which you say, if I do X, Y will be the outcome. Did you know that you don't have control 
of the outcome. But if you're a control freak, like many are, we want to be able to say, if I do this, it comes out that way. I can't relinquish that control to the idea that I can do all the right things, and then it goes south. So let me ask you, how do you define success? How do you define success in child rearing, or success in your job, or success in life in general? Well, you may not have written any of that down, but every one of us has embedded within some core beliefs about what success looks like in all those areas. And I'm here to tell you that in every one of those areas, things could go south. Most of us define success by the outcome. We say it doesn't matter if you win or lose, but how you play the game. But in fact, we live as if the product is really more important than the process. But the problem is you can't control the product. Only what you do in the process. So let me tell you what biblical success is. If you will allow this to be implanted deep into your soul, it's going to give you the right perspective on all your circumstances, the good, the bad, and the ugly. All the circumstances that God allows into your life. So what is biblical success? Three words. Faithfulness is success. Faithfulness is success. That is, if I'm faithful to the task and in the circumstances that God has assigned to me, then I am successful no matter how it turns out. And one way you can know that you don't have that faithfulness is success mindset is if you're somebody, and this is just an example, somebody who cannot make decisions. If you're somebody who is seized with paralysis by analysis, when you're trying to make a decision and you worry and you fret and you stay up at night because of it, if that's the case, then you are not someone who believes faithfulness is success because you're so concerned about how it might turn out and what I'm telling you, friends, is more importantly, what God is teaching us is you can't control how it turns out. So what I should concern myself with is the facts that I have at hand and the situation that God has assigned to me in this particular circumstance. And if I am, then I will hear the words from the Lord, well done, good, and remember what it is, well done, good, and faithful servant. So when we can't make decisions, or when we make decisions and they don't turn out the way we wanted them to turn out, and then we fall apart, that reveals for us a core belief that I deserve a predictable world. Time doesn't permit us to run through all the implications of that kind of an attitude, but let me just give you one additional implication, and that is to believe that I can control my world is to also believe that I don't need God to control it. So brothers and sisters who are control freaks, when you do that, you're saying something about your belief in the control of God. So one key belief is I deserve ease and comfort. And that comes to the fore in our suffering. Another is I deserve a predictable world. And then a third at the bottom of page three is I deserve a fair world. We have a belief that life is intrinsically fair and that consequently people's decency and their morality and their goodness will essentially determine what happens to them. We perceive outcomes as either a reward or a punishment. When we assume that our world is fair, our ability to tolerate and accept calamity then is dramatically affected. So here's what I want you to think about. Remember I said 
that faithfulness is success. So it's not the outcome that determines whether or not you were successful. It's the process, not the outcome, the process and what you did in the process. And how do I know this? Well, just do a cursory reading of God's Word, the Bible, and you'll see what the outcome was like for virtually all of the people in it. I mean, for virtually all of the people in the Bible, it turned out lousy. We have a whole chapter in your New Testament devoted to what we call Faith's Hall of Fame. Hebrews chapter 11 lists all of these people who, because of what they believed, they did amazing things for God. But then you look at what happened to those people as a result of pursuing those things, and it's often a negative outcome. Yet in the midst of that, the Bible tells us in the chapter just before, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32, that there was this kind of amazing attitude that God's people throughout the centuries have had. It says in that verse, quote, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. <laughs> now there's an amazing statement, joyfully accepting the confiscation of your property. You see, friends, those people did not have the American dream mindset. You see, our stuff and our property is what we call it, but in fact, it belongs to someone else, namely the God who entrusted it to us. And he can dispose with it as he, as he sees fit, and they believe that. And if my stuff is gone tomorrow, here is what I need to remember. It wasn't my stuff. And that's what those people in Hebrews chapter 10 did. That's the reason they were able to, quote, joyfully accept the confiscation of their property. And then it goes on to talk about the fact that they weren't sojourning here as if this is where they were planning to be for all of eternity, that this was a temporary place for them. And as a result of those core bedrock beliefs, they understood that life's not fair, that we live in a fallen world. What really matters is whether or not we're faithful in the process. So if you look at page four, these are the kinds of questions then that come up that reveal that we have these core bedrock beliefs, these false beliefs. First is ask, why me? Now, I'm not suggesting to you, friends, that I never do these things myself. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. I simply have to tell you and myself what is true and what we should do and what God is teaching me and us to do. I've had many times in my life where I've said to myself, why me? As have probably everyone watching this. But when I say that and when you say that, notice what we say at the top of page four. It's because we are self-centered people. We often think the worst kind of suffering is our own. The more removed the tragedy is from us, the easier it is to deal with. So we ask, why me? We need to look at a much larger perspective and ask, why them? Or better yet, why not me? Why wasn't that me? Secondly, on page four, we ask, why this? As part of our bent for control, we try to have a world where certain things may happen to us and other things won't. Whatever the random event might be like, most, if not all of us, believe that certain things could not happen to me. Probably most of us would not say that explicitly, but again, these are bedrock beliefs that are in our heart of hearts. We ask, why this? Is there anything, friends, that could not happen to you or me? And then why now? We do not like or appreciate interruptions in life because we believe that things ought to be one way and we never expect them to be different. 
We react adversely to crises. Our true beliefs are brought to the surface through a calamity. We can strive to align them with Scripture, but often we fight to maintain our view of life. Friends, what I'm trying to do, not only in this session, but in this entire series, is to challenge myself as I challenge you to identify what those core bedrock beliefs are that you have seen rise to the fore in your circumstances, and then let's align those with God's Word. When you do that, you'll be prepared for whatever happens, come what may. Now, how do I know that? Well, here's how. In your Bible, in Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4 has this famous verse, verse 13, that says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, many of you are familiar with that. You've cross-stitched it, needle-pointed it. That's good. What most of us, though, are not familiar with are the verses that are right before it, that place it in its context. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Well, what things? What kinds of things? Here are the kinds of things that are listed in the verses just before. I can be well-fed or hungry. I can be in plenty or in want. I can be in all kinds of adverse circumstances. But then in conclusion, Paul, who wrote it, says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. In other words, I can go through all of this adversity. I can go through all sorts of different kinds of circumstances in life. I can do all of that because he gives me strength. In verse 11 of Philippians chapter 4, just two verses before that one, Paul says, Quote, I have learned the secret of being content, of being content in any and every situation. And then he goes on to list those adverse circumstances and some good circumstances. Whatever, good or bad, I can endure all of them because of my core bedrock belief in the goodness of God, in the future promise of heaven, but also in the use that God's going to make of me in this circumstance in the here and now. Not only in my life, but in the lives of others. That's what he teaches us in the four chapters of the book of Philippians. And Paul exemplified that in his life. All right, we're going to finish here in just a moment. But I hope if you've been paying attention that you're thinking to yourself, how do I look like that? How do I have a life's profile like that? Ask yourself, what kinds of questions have I had about God and about myself and about others and about his world in the midst of the suffering that he's allowed to come my way. And then what we have to do, friends, and I urge you to do, is compare that to what you know about God's word and the truth. Because so often we deceive ourselves, and in that deception, we have these bedrock, core, but false beliefs that dictate how we react to the circumstances of our lives. So let's ask God to help us this week to analyze the things that we're going through to consider how we think about them and try to unearth those bedrock but false beliefs that are animating our reactions. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time to consider these truths that you have taught us in your word about who you are and about who we are. And because sin distorts our view of you and ourselves and your world, we come to believe things, even imperceptibly, believe things that are false about all of those. And Lord, they come to clarity when you bring adversity into our lives. 
But Lord, we ask you to help us as we see those things arising in our hearts and in our minds and affecting the way we think and talk and act. As we see that they are contrary to what you say, that we will align ourselves with your truth and gladly so. Help us to see, Lord, that you are using these adverse circumstances, even in this pandemic that we're in and now and all of the changes that it, it has made to all of our lives, that you are using it in order to expose those things, in order to bring us to a clearer, better knowledge of you, ourselves, and our world, and to bring us to repentance, a change of mind that leads to a different, a radically different reaction in the midst of our circumstances. Help us to ponder these things this week. We ask you to keep us safe, to bring us back together as we consider more of what you say in your word about pain and suffering and how we're to react to it next week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for watching. We'll see you next week, Lord willing.